Welcome to the second episode of the Elite Prospects podcast with myself, J.D. Burke. I am the editor-in-chief of Elite Prospects and EP Rinkside, and I am joined again by none other than Craig Button. He is TSN's Director of Scouting, a man who needs no introduction. Craig, how are you doing today? I'm good, J.D. How are you? I'm doing really well, and and why wouldn't I be? We've got some new prospect news to talk about. I mean, the... Uh, the NHL draft lottery completed its second phase, that very strange formula that they concocted. It's finally come to a conclusion. And we can now talk about where Alexi Lafreniere is presumably going to go uh, when the draft occurs in, in early October. And I, uh, I don't know how everybody's feeling about this. I feel like because it was a team that was in the play-in round, it's not like uh, Alexi Lafreniere was going to be going to a down-on-their-luck franchise. But he goes to one that, I mean... You talk about the New York Rangers and how well Jeff Gordon has rebuilt this team. And and you know what? There have been some misses along the way, and, and we can talk about that as we get into this conversation here. But I'm looking at a group that I think two, was it two years ago, Craig? They put out that letter and they said there are going to be some painful moments ahead. We're going to have to get away from from some of the veterans that you've known over this five-year stretch here that, is, that have taken us to the Stanley Cup final. Uh, that have been core members of this group, and we're going to have to turn over a new leaf. We're going to have to turn things over to a new core. We're going to have to make difficult decisions. They did that. They stockpiled draft picks. They they took on bad contracts, if that would get them even more depth picks in the second, third, or fourth round. And you know what? They're also getting lucky, too. And and when you talk about you know that saying that that, that luck is the residue of design, I look at what Jeff Gordon has done with this team, and I go... Yeah, it sure does help to get Capo Caco one year and then follow it up with the first overall pick in the next. But I mean, they've done everything right. And if you want to talk about a team getting rewarded for rebuilding the right way, I think this is the perfect example. Uh, I, I agree. And, you know, you think about the New York Rangers, you know, when you evaluate your team and you evaluate where you are as an organization, you, you have to be really clear. You have to be really honest with yourselves and not be delusional to, to a small degree or and certainly not to any degree even greater than small because that's where you start to make mistakes. I think the New York Rangers identified not only that their team wasn't capable of competing for a Stanley Cup, but they also looked at who their competitors were. And at that, and, and when we go back to February of 2018 when they sent that letter out, Tampa Bay, Washington, Pittsburgh, Boston. I mean, there was no way that the New York Rangers were going to be able to compete against those teams. So if you keep chasing it and keep chasing it and keep chasing it, you're never going to catch up to to it. It's it's like a dog chasing its tail. You you can see your tail and you think you can get it and you try to get it, but you're never getting it. And I think the Rangers deserve a tremendous amount of credit, first and foremost, about being honest with themselves. And now you can proceed forward. And, you know, th- through that, I mean, they made a really good trade for Mika Zibanejad. That, that, that was a terrific trade for Mika Zibanejad. Then because they opened up cap room, they traded Derek Stepan. They, they, they weren't going to commit money to free agents that weren't going to help them. It opens up room for them to sign Artemi Panarin, who, who's a terrific player. But And, and Chris Kreider comes into the fold. They're going to have decisions to make going forward on, on their salary cap with players they can keep and players they can't keep. But when you are able to draft well and get players into your system, 
that you know are young and, and now you're going to help them develop and you're going to be patient with their development well that's going to help your overall cause and you know you look at you look at their blue line they were able to trade for Truba they traded for Adam Fox an entry level player they trade for Tony D'Angelo you know they have Keandre Miller they have Nils Lundqvist sitting there they, they got a really good group of young defensemen and now you know with Shesterkin in the net now they can start to build their team in championship mold and I think it's terrific yeah hey the, the benefit is they moved from six to two uh, last year. So six, they would have got a good player at six, but you get Capo Caco. This year, obviously, they're one of the placeholder teams after the, uh, the, the first phase of the, of the lottery, and they move up significantly. And, and, and that really is a, a huge bonus for them. And now you, you continue to build it out, uh, you know, with two really good players that you were uh, afforded the luxury of getting due to the, due to the lottery. Yeah, no kidding. And and how do we feel about that? I mean, I for one, I, I kind of push back against the notion that a, a draft lottery system was even required of, of the NHL. And, you know, I think a lot of people, they go, well, isn't this supposed to be a mechanism for parity, uh, a mechanism for leveling the playing field? And you think about, well, the New York Rangers, they, they moved up from 11th overall to first overall. And Man, I, I just, do you think that the NHL has kind of thought themselves into a pretzel with this format? Do you know what I mean by that? They've, they've kind of gone a little bit, and this is one of my favorite sayings, they've kind of been a little too clever by half here. Because when I look at the draft and I look at the disparity between the big market teams and the small market teams and what sort of capabilities that affords them on and off the ice, I mean, the NHL can't delude itself into thinking that it operates on the same terms as say the NBA or the NFL and and they do have to find mechanisms that can create sort of a level playing field and I've always thought that the draft was supposed to be that and and you know obviously a team like the Rangers 11th overall it's not like they were a playoff team uh, by any calculation this year but it's it's not exactly a team like say the Detroit Red Wings for example and I know our producer Rob is is definitely upset with this process, a big Detroit Red Wings fan. But uh, do you think that they need to to rethink the lottery process? Because for me, it just looks like they overreacted to three straight years of the Edmonton Oilers getting the first overall pick, and now they've kind of created this this monster that's kind of rewarding teams that don't necessarily need the help. And I do kind of wonder if the New York Rangers fit into that mold. Well, there's a lot to chew on there. So the first thing I'm going to tell you is I don't think they created a monster. I think it became necessary because the NHL, first and foremost, is a competitive league. And when you have teams that are openly tanking and talking about falling to the bottom of the league, you, you can never run a professional sports league where you're playing, where you're paying players uh, millions of dollars. You're asking your, your partners to contribute significant dollars uh, as, as corporate stakeholders, your broadcast partners, and you're asking the fans to pay big money so when you have teams openly talking about tanking that's where the problem began so maybe all those teams that were talking about openly tanking should take a long hard look at themselves because that's what uh, created this lottery mechanism and i think it became necessary because when you start to talk about competitive integrity that's what was at stake here for the national hockey league second uh, thing okay sorry second i don't mean thing, to cut you off there like uh, no no it's okay second thing OK, all these teams that have high picks. Right. If, if the lottery, if the draft was supposed to help all these teams with high picks, please explain to me Edmonton, Buffalo and Florida. 
Because guess what? There's no guarantee that high picks turn anything around. I'll tell you what turns things around is really astute ownership and management. That's what turns it around. And you don't have to look very far in those organizations to understand that that was severely lacking despite having high picks. So it's not just about high picks. And thirdly, you know, hey, listen, the New York Rangers benefit from this. I'll go back to the Colorado Avalanche in, in the 20, uh, to, in the draft where Kale McCarr went fourth. They were first. They dropped the fourth. And it, oh, boy, oh, Colorado dropped the fourth. Yeah, they ended up with Kale McCarr. You know what? Build your team. You're right, J.D., it's not the NBA. It's not about one player that can dictate the change in your organization. But you have to continuously acquire players. And it's no different than the NFL draft. NFL teams have had the number one pick and high picks and drafting this guy and that guy, and they go nowhere. The astute teams, the smart teams, are the ones that benefit from uh, their decisions. And it's not just about having a high pick. There's not just one avenue. Yeah, it helps, and if you do it right, but team building requires more than just having a high pick. And if it was just about high picks, we wouldn't be talking about the Florida Panthers over the century. We wouldn't be talking about the Buffalo Sabres, who have been abysmal, and the Edmonton Oilers, who for 14 seasons have done absolutely nothing. No, I, I, I think there's merit to that. And I do think that protecting the integrity of the sport has value. But I just wonder, I mean, I've had this conversation before with a few people where I go, I mean, I, I see what you're saying and I, I get these points. They're well made. But do you ever wonder if if fighting for this this kind of, I don't know, this little element of randomness to a process that is supposed to inject high-end talent into NHL rosters uh, that might not otherwise get there. I mean, isn't the alternative, though, that you create a lot of franchises like, for example, and, and I hope Minnesota Wild fans don't take this one too personally, but like the Minnesota Wild, who just languished between 6th to 10th overall in the Western Conference because... They just never had the capability to to draw, for example, a significant free agent like an Artemi Panarin. I know they had Ryan Suter and, and Zach Parise, but those were, were the exceptions, not the rules, right? And then you talk about, well, how do you find elite talent, the type that takes your team from being in that squishy middle ground and then driving them to contention? I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously not the be-all, end-all because, I mean, you brought up the Edmonton Oilers, you brought up the Buffalo Sabres, you brought up the Florida Panthers, right? These are organizations that have had a wealth of high picks, but it really can make the difference, right? And, and I just wonder, like, is the alternative to a world where we give the teams that are most down on their luck, where they most need the help, where they most need cost-controlled talent like an Alexi Lafreniere, I mean, is the alternative to that a situation where you create this false sense of parity throughout the league and, and kind of have these teams that just kind of, I don't know, exist in the squishy middle ground for five to ten years at a time? Is, is that preferable? Because that's kind of the question that I have when I think about the, the lottery mechanism. You keep talking about false sense of parity. Like, you know, it, it, bottom line is it's not about luck. The reason those teams have been no good is because of their management and ownership. That's why. Oh, 100%. You will get no pushback Nico Rantanen went ninth. Okay, Kyle Connor went later in the draft. Brock Besser. You know, I can name players that have gone later. The draft isn't just about the top five. It's not about the top three. It's not about the first overall pick. It's about talent throughout the draft. And it's about acquiring talent, identifying talent, acquiring talent, developing talent. And I can guarantee you that the teams that have had high picks that have absolutely failed, Okay, haven't done that area very well at all. 
So you, you can change the lottery system and do whatever you want. It's not going to change it. And the lottery system has nothing to do with these teams with respect to uh, their, abysmal, their abysmal standing over the last 10 years. And, you know, we're not talking about one, two, three years down on your luck, whatever you want to call it. We're talking about this century for the, for the uh, Florida Panthers, 14 years for Edmonton, 10 for the Buffalo Sabres. That no. has nothing to do with draft lottery. And listen, Sportsnet pays $5.2 billion. NBC pays $2.1 billion. You, you think they want to be supporting something where teams are out of purposely losing? Go talk to the Buffalo Sabres. If you want a different system, tell, tell the Buffalo Sabres to start talking about tanking. Because the reason you end up in those spots is because of ineptness in running your team. That's why. No, I, I definitely think that, that a lot of what you're saying is resonating with me. And I think that those are a lot of really well-made points, right? Like I don't think, you know, for example, if you are one of those teams and, and, and you're, for example, the Edmonton Oilers, right? And you get the Ryan Nugent Hopkins, the Nail Yakupovs, I mean, whoopsie, uh, you know, <laughs> the Leon Dreisaitl at third overall, the Connor McDavid's. You know, because it's not a team like or, or because it's not a sport like the NBA where a single player can completely alter the complexion of a franchise overnight. I mean, you really have to find those depth pieces. And and I would agree with you that their inability to build around these players. I mean, if you look at the Edmonton Oilers draft record uh, before, ironically enough, uh, before Peter Shirelli's arrival in that franchise, they weren't finding anything in rounds two through six. And if you want to talk about why they couldn't support those players, I think right there, there's there's your argument right in a nutshell. Um, you know, shifting gears a little bit from the philosophical debate about this one, because I think we could both go on uh, opposite sides of the battlements here for a while and, and probably, you know, uh, run this topic straight into the ground as I'm often want to do. But let's talk about what the Rangers are going to do with that pick, because I think, you know what, here's one part of this, this draft lottery phase two. Uh, outcome that I think is really great for the NHL is the pick went to a team where there is no foregone conclusion about what they're going to do with that that first overall selection because I look at the New York Rangers and I go they have one of if not the best prospect pool in the NHL and you named so many of those players but there's one area where it's lacking there's one area where they're just more about depth than they are about quality and that's down the middle of their lineup. And I look at Alexi Lafreniere, and I think that he's the first overall pick. And I know you've got him at number one on your board, but man, is is that a tough call for them to make or what? Because you've already got Chris Kreider, you've already got Artemi Panarin, you've already got Capo Caco, and of course, everyone's favorite left winger, Brendan Smith. Is there room for Alexi Lafreniere in that group? I mean, what, what do you do if you're the Rangers? Because it's not like you can trade a Capo Caco, not at this stage in his development. It's not like you can trade or even want to trade an Artemi Panarin. And whether there's a market for a Chris Kreider or not, with the salary staying static at $81.5 million, I mean, that's a big question mark. So what do you do if you're the Rangers, Craig? What do you do with this first overall pick? Do you consider Quinton Byfield? Do you look at trading down? Who do you identify from the top five if you do want to go that route? I'm curious to get your thoughts on this one. Well, if I'm picking one, I'm taking Lafreniere. He's the best player in the draft. And uh, uh, quite frankly, like, you know, it's a, you talk about talented uh, acquisition. Get the best player. He's the best player. Now, Capocacco plays right wing. He's a left shot, but he plays the right side. So, you know, that doesn't gum things up over there. 
And, you know, one of the things that we, we sometimes tend to overlook uh, when we're talking about teams picking in the top five, you know, first overall, the Rangers also have a, another first-round pick via the Carolina Hurricanes in the Brady Shea deal. So maybe there's a center there. Maybe, maybe, maybe our guest later in the show, Seth Jarvis, might be a really good fit with that pick if he's available. Mm, but Okay. I, so, I like what you're putting down there. I, I can get behind that. <laughs> so, again, you know, it's not about one pick. It's about trying to figure out, okay, we're in a very advantageous position picking first overall, and we have an opportunity, in my view, if I'm the Rangers, to get the best player uh, in the draft. But we can't just exclude other considerations, and you know whether you want to look back and trade back, but also part of it is is look at you know wh- where you're going to be picking with that other pick what other players are available there that could fill that area that you point out jd that center ice position right so so now the for me the equation becomes okay if we have lafreniere and okay is that something that really takes our team forward or if we trade the first pick and we get this and because it, it when you when you try to break it down to just one player, you, you I think you become too myopic, and I think what you have to do is everything that you're doing has to be considered with what else you're considering to do, right? And so by doing that, and and JD, you and me both agree that this draft has a has a depth of quality, you know, uh, past uh, the the first ten picks, so. You know, you start to look at what other opportunities might be there to to fill that center ice uh, hole, and you, you go from there. But that's how I that, that's how I would be considering everything, and you have to be open to listening to what other teams may be considering uh, to try to get to that first pick if they are. Mm, yeah, that's that is a good point. I'm definitely on board with team draft the best available player, right? Like that's philosophically the only way anyone should ever approach the draft. But I just wonder if if you know what I mean, like uh, if you're looking at this group, right? And you go, OK, of course, Alexi Lafreniere is number one. And I don't think there's a ton of debate there. One of the things that I've kind of come around to in a lot of my film work and a lot of crunching the numbers is that. I find that there's also a pretty compelling argument for for Quinton Byfield. And and one of the things that I've kind of come around to in, in kind of embracing this is a realistic debate, right? Not one of those ones that uh, sometimes arises for the sake of content, but a legitimate question about who should go in that spot is I look at Lafreniere and I go, okay, he's, he's an early birth date. So he's got basically a year on Quinton Byfield in terms of their physical development and in terms of how long they've been playing in the CHL. And then I compare Quinton Byfield's year this year to Alexi Lafreniere's draft minus one season because they're more comparable in age. And I go, oh, wow, these two players actually compare really closely when we, when we take a step back and kind of approach their statistical output with that lens. And, and I know that a lot of people are going to go, okay, here we go. The draft guys are at it again. They're trying to create a controversy at first overall where one doesn't exist. But I, I got to tell you, Craig, the more I think about it, the more I look at the tape, the numbers, there's a lot of evidence that Quinton Byfield could make sense in that spot. I know you've got a lot of time for Tim Stutzla too. And, and of course, the only reason that I haven't brought him up yet is because there is some debate over whether he's a center or a winger in the NHL. I know you think he has the capabilities to be a center. 
What do you think of that debate? And also, uh, just for the record, you are correct. Capo Caco is a right winger. I was thinking of Pavel Buchnevich, who often plays the left side, but can also play the right. Um, but what do you think about that debate at first overall? Listen, th- these types of discussions are always healthy and they're always positive with respect to evaluating players that fall into that group. And, you know, J.D., you and I talk about this continuously. We can disagree about if a player should be two or four or three or five or whatever. But if, you, if, you're, if you're talking about the players that belong in that group, it's healthy. You know, where you run into problems if you start introducing players that don't belong in that group. So, I mean, you can make a case for any player if you really want to. But you got to be making the case for the players that belong in that group. So, you know, there's no way I could sit and say that Quentin Byfield doesn't belong in that discussion. And again, you, you, we can talk about where Quentin Byfield is or what Quentin Byfield is as a projection. Now, and, and this, listen, I think Quentin Byfield's a terrific player. I think he's a terrific prospect. But one thing, and, and this is one of the things that we get into in terms of projection and what has been and what is and draft minus one and, you know, where they're at with Alexi Lafreniere. Quentin Byfield has never been the best player in his age group, international, never. Alexi Lafreniere has always been the best player in his age group, always. There has never been any debate about that. So when you start to look at it, now if you want to do the projection and talk about what you think Quentin Byfield can be, th- th- that's a legitimate one. I mean, he's a, he's a centerman that I think is in the mold of Anze Kopitar and at the very least could be Sean Couturier. Now, when I have a range of player like that and I say, hey, listen, this is what I think he could be, and if that's what you want and you think he's in, the, in your center ice position, no problem. That's a projection. But in terms of where these players have been at at various points of their career, Quentin Byfield has never been where Alexi Lafreniere has been. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with that. And I I think that's kind of where the the crux of the argument is for me, really, is not what they are at this stage in their development, not what they could contribute to. And there is some debate over whether, for example, Quentin Byfield should be in the NHL next year. There's much less when it comes to Alexi Lafreniere. I think he's totally ready for the show. But I think it's more compelling when you start to break these two players down and you go, what could they be in three, four, five years? And and I think that's kind of the compelling argument for Byfield because how many players at his size can skate as well as he can and can handle the puck in the small ice game as well as he can? I think the one issue that I've kind of found myself coming to with with Quinton Byfield, and this is something that our, our OHL scout Rachel Dory has pointed out, is that uh, one thing he's going to have to work on as he kind of rounds out his game and develops for the NHL is uh, he's almost too comfortable playing the small ice game and and kind of avoids going into pockets of space and and giving himself more room with which to work. I think those are kind of the details that he needs to work on. And I think that's going to help him unlock the totality of his potential. And, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I hear you talking about him as as Sean Couturier and, and Anzi Kopitar. I spoke to one scout at the Helenka Gretzky who told me, Quinton Byfield is Taylor Hall at center. And, and I'm usually really reticent with player comps, mostly because I'm terrible at him, at them. But that one really stuck with me. And, and I mean, if, if you have to wait a couple years, I, I do kind of wonder, like, this is where it gets interesting because the New York Rangers have expedited their contention arc to such a degree. I mean, just bringing in Artemi Panarin, they're, they're ready to compete now. And, and I think that's another compelling element that goes into this decision is do they 
Are, are they willing to wait the extra few years if they do rate Quentin Byfield as the necessary piece for taking their rebuild to that next step? Or if they see the urgency of the moment and that guides them towards, for example, Alexi Lafreniere. What do you think about that element? Well, I'll answer, I'll I'll respond to the comment. Quentin Byfield does not belong in the National Hockey League next season. He's not ready. He he, he is not even like playing in the NHL and contributing in the NHL are two completely different things. And again, I think Quentin, you know, has, has a lot of potential. I think in a lot of regards, he's still, you know, developing uh, his game with respect to being confident and whatnot. And I think that uh, to your comment that Rachel made watching Quentin, you know, that's part of what I call developmental. And it's not it's not a weakness that's inherent. It's a developmental area of his game. You got to allow that development to take course. So I'll move past that. But again, if, if like I'll take away this part about today versus tomorrow like inevitably what ends up happening is is if you start getting too focused in solely on today or solely on tomorrow you miss things and 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 that's oh yeah this guy's ready he's physically ready we got to take him look at how good he is instead of looking at where a player can be and so when you're picking in the draft and you're looking at players in the top end that's where teams i think you know, run themselves around in their in their in their arguments instead of just saying, "Okay, who's who, who's the group? What players? What do these players offer? What can, what can we add? What's their timeline?" And then go from there instead of taking it down and going, "Well, the Frenniers right now can help us. Our, our 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 opportunity for winning might be a little bit better now, but it's not just about now." Why won't why won't their uh, potential be really good in two years' time? If you think Byfield's going to be a better player, because Keandre Miller, Nils Lundqvist, Jacob Truba, and Tony D'Angelo and Adam Fox, they're not going anywhere. I mean, I mean, uh, other than salary cap considerations, Shesterkin's not going anywhere. Panarin's not going anywhere. Zabanejad's not going anywhere. So w- why in two years' time are they not going to be good? So again look at all the considerations and all the factors and don't get too focused in on this or that soul. And I'm not saying they do solely, but weight it accordingly. And then look at it because, you know, one of the things that people, oh yeah, you got to do this now because he's ready to play. Okay, good. Guess what's going to happen in two years time uh, when other players turn out to be better because you took that path. You're going to be criticized for not doing the long-term view. Mm, and rightly so. And yeah, rightly yeah, so. Right. I, mean, I agree with you, JD. So, so again, you got to keep it all in, in 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 what I call a global perspective with respect to evaluating your situation, players' potential, uh, players' growth uh, and development uh, timelines. You know where your team is at. What what opportunities may exist to 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 add a player or consider moving into different parts of the draft. Those are all good, positive, necessary elements to building your team and certainly when you're entering the draft well what about another player who who has kind of just had the most meteoric rise this year and 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 i know you're going to shy away from this but you were one of the first adopters of the tim stutzla movement um we stan we would say and i i think about the fact that he's 
pretty consistently in the top three on most boards. We've got him a bit lower at elite prospects. And absolutely, I feel very guilty about that after having spoken to him for our last episode. I, I, I honestly just about tweaked the rankings as soon as we, we got off the call with him. But do you think that he warrants consideration in this conversation? Because I, I, I mean, if, if you are willing to concede or not concede rather, but just agree that Quentin Byfield is in this, this tier with an Alexi Lafreniere, I look at your rankings and I go, you've got Lafreniere one, Tim Stutzla two, and, and Byfield three, then it would only stand to reason that, that Tim Stutzla might be worth considering in that spot too. What do you think about that consideration for the Rangers? Well, I, I can't argue against my own list, can I? <laughs> no, no. I guess I should have asked you to expand upon that. That's what I should have done there. You will destroy me. You will destroy yeah. me, and rightfully so. Uh, and, and let me just say this, uh, uh, J.D., you know, I, I'm not a big believer in early adopter or anything. You know, I get an opportunity sometimes to watch more players uh, in, in a particular area than maybe others. I think ultimately the idea of evaluating players, and I say this all, it's not static. And once everybody starts to watch and see players, then then I, I think that the, the healthy discussion, the healthy debates are now able to ensue because it's not just about one person saying, oh, I think this guy's a good player. I don't like that guy, right? It's, it's when you have multiple people that have not watch the players and have dived into the player. And now you can really uh, not only uh, hear other opinions and hear other thoughts, but challenge your own thoughts. And, and that's what I love about it. And that's what uh, I think helps all of us be better is, is, oh, geez, I didn't consider that. That's a good thought. I better watch for that. Or, wow, you know, that's something I never saw. I better go watch for that. Right. And, and when you're sitting down early and you're watching a player, you go, yeah, he's good. But but you don't have that other thought uh, bubble to come into your own thought bubble. And I, I think that's what helps really expand uh, the prospect conversation. So I'll move I'll move on to Tim Stutzla. Uh, I think Tim is, is a terrific player. I, I think he's got a style of game that's uh, similar. And, and, and like, I, I always talk about types of players. I, I like, you know, just how a guy plays a game. So I try to draw that parallel when I use player comparisons. But when, when I watch Stutzla play, I, I, I see that imagination and creativity like Patrick Kane. And so, you know, when, when we're talking about the way Patrick Kane plays and I can say, well, I see some similarities in Tim Stutzla's game. And see, this is why I think that Tim Stutzla can go into that same conversation. Lafreniere is a left winger. Byfield's a center. So Stutzla has always been a center. This year he played left wing and played it incredibly well. So now, okay, if you, don't, if, if you think he's a center and you think he's that good, well, the worst thing that happens is he's a left winger. Well, you're going to draft the left winger in Lafreniere. If he ends up being a center and he's able to, to, to take his game to that level as a center, well, now you have your center. So that's why I would say that Stutzla belongs in the, in, in the discussion uh, along with Lafreniere and Byfield. I know what route I would go. But it doesn't mean that you don't have a, a discussion, and that would be my rationale for uh, having that with Stutzla in it. Well, uh, let's. I think we've talked about all the options that the Rangers have at first overall. 
Let's shift gears and talk about some of the teams that are, are going to compose the, the rest of that top five, right? The Los Angeles Kings at number two, the Senators at number three and five and five uh, and the Detroit Red Wings at number four. Is there somebody among that group that you have identified as as making the most sense as a potential, uh, I guess, I guess a vulture circling that first overall pick just waiting to drop the 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 claws into it and and i wonder like if you're for example the los angeles kings and and we've talked about this this first group and how it's such a a tightly knit tier i wonder if you're the la kings and you're going we've got alex turcott we've got gabe velarde and and what an awesome story that is to see him playing hockey and after his career uh seemed to be in the balance and and really it's it's phenomenal just to see him playing much less having the impact that he is uh tyler madden just added to their pool uh you go up and down the list they've got a ton of center depth of course rasmus kapari and and aiden dudas i could go on and on but do they have that same depth on the left wing and do they have that game-breaking uh series-defining talent that can just take over the game on a moment on a moment's notice and i go well maybe turcotte could be that uh they've got some snipers in arter kaliev they've got uh samuel fagamo in the shl but man would alexi lafreniere look at look good in that prospect pool and you have to think if the teams know as we do that this tier isn't that that widely separated from one to two to three if you're the kings and you're going we've got this figured out if we can just add this one component it's going to completely change the complexion of our rebuild are you willing to pay that extra premium to make it happen well i guess i guess you ask yourself this question what what is the premium you have to pay so you know uh like you know we can look at a prospect pool and we can look and say, okay, they have this or they have that. And, you know, it's pretty obvious that the LA Kings have a good prospect pool in my view, you know, and, 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 you know, I, I'd look at number two and I just say, okay, so if I compare uh, uh, Byfield in terms of type to Kopitar, that wouldn't be bad to have him uh, learn under Kopitar. And, and, and as you think about Kopitar's long-term contract, you start to think about, okay, as, as we move deeper into Kopitar's contract, having Turcotte, having Byfield, does that help us, you know, move Kopitar as he gets a little bit older, you know, out of areas where he might not be as, as competent as he once was? Now, I, I might go a different route here and say, okay, what about LA with their thing? What about if they wanted to target Jamie Drysdale? And they're thinking about moving back because maybe Jamie Drysdale would be an excellent player to learn under Drew Doughty. Because they don't have anybody like Drew Doughty. They don't have anybody like Kopitar. And I, I like Turcotte. The cautionary tale for me with Gabe Velarde, and I love the story. I love what he's been able to do. He still only has 10 NHL games under his belt. And, you know, I, I hope he gets 1,010. And, you know, where he's at now. But, you know, you talk about Kupari, you talk about Turcotte, but, you know, Kalia, Fagamo, you know, Tyler Madden, who can play on the left wing. They have they have Akil Thomas. They have Jared Anderson Dolan in the middle of the ice. They have a really good opportunity to look at these players and look at the draft and consider many, many different things. Yeah, I think Lafreniere would be a great fit for them. But what's the cost of that with respect to, uh, you know, uh, doing that? Now, I mean, they just traded to Foley and ended up with a really good prospect in Tyler Madden. They ended up with a second-round draft pick. So, you know, we use the term currency. 
And so they may have currency now because they've drafted so well in the second round uh, and, and later rounds to now maybe say, okay, that isn't a big price because we've done so well in these areas. So, but I can't argue that Lafreniere wouldn't be an excellent fit there. And, and is there a team that you've perhaps identified? Because for me, it's it's the Los Angeles Kings. Like, not just because it's good theater, not just because it makes our job just that much more compelling and interesting, but legitimately, I just look at that group and I go, man, I want to see Alexi Lafreniere go to, go to L.A. That just seems so perfect for me. And especially if the Rangers move back to number two, they get their center in Quinton Byfield. I mean, it, it's just serendipitous almost but is there somebody else that you've identified maybe in this top five or perhaps even beyond this group that you think should either consider that option or you think has a really compelling case you know to to sneak up and and grab that pick with with whatever prospect or pick surplus is available to them well i mean there's at times teams that get eager if on the ottawa senators there's no way i'm considering moving three and five to one there's just oh no, way. absolutely not, not, not. not a chance. No, because I think their prospect pool is really good, and I think at three and five they're going to get quality players. The Detroit Red Wings are not one player away from being a good team and being good. They, they got to just continuously build it and build it. And to me, at four, they're going to get a quality, high-level player. And whether that's a defenseman, whether it's a it's a forward, maybe it's a goalie, but. I think they got to take the long approach, the long game, and, and keep building out with quality. And they're going to have that chance at four. So uh, as we get past there, you know, you start to think, okay, you know, would, would Alexi Lafreniere look really good on the left side of Jack Eichel? Yeah, I would say he'd look really good on that side. <laughs> but uh, what would it cost Buffalo, okay, to move up? you know, from that spot at eight all the way to one. I, I would suggest the cost would be pretty significant. But I know he would look good there. Would he uh, Would he look good on the left side of Nico Hischer or Jack Hughes? Yeah, but that cost is going to be high. And I think when I look at the Devils and I look at what their opportunities as long with Buffalo to add players without it being a significant cost to them, because – it's, it, it's got to benefit the New York Rangers to, to a greater extent of moving back than it is to hold the pick. And that, that requires a team to have to really, I, I think, significantly pay a price uh, back there. So while I can make a case that there's fits, I, I just don't see where they can, where they can make a, a move that doesn't harm them long term because it, I think it'll cost them too much. Mm, yeah, that is a fair point. And, you know, perhaps I'm getting a little bit too far into the lab here doing the mad scientist thing, and just <laughs> altering the pieces on the board and, yeah. and going Zapruder film breakdown. And um, I mean, that's that's why we do it, though, right? It's yeah. fun. And the draft is it's all, all about projections. It's all about trying to find the right fit. And and I think one thing that we need to, to really broach before we, we get ready for our interview with Seth Jarvis, who's going to be joining us in a bit, is what's available to the Rangers right now. What do they already have in their prospect pool? And I think the most compelling argument for not feeling the need to make moves like the ones that we've talked about, moving back or what have you, to, to secure a center in this draft, I think a lot of that hinges on how this team rates Vitaly Kravtsov's long-term prospects and whether they think he's going to be competent, capable and ready to handle an NHL center's role. And I know he just had a tough year, bounced between the KHL and the Hartford Wolf Pack and 
really kind of struggled to find his footing, it felt like. But I mean, the talent there is overwhelming. And I know I, I think it might have been a year and a half ago, Craig, I think you had him number one on your midseason uh, affiliated prospects list. And, and I'm surprised I remember that. But uh, um, what do you think about his, his long term prospects of playing center? Because we were talking a little bit off the air and you were going, well, he did it at the World Juniors. He did it in the KHL. Why can't he do it at another level? What do you think about that? Well, he's an interesting case because, the, you know, number one, he's a really young player. And I think that expectations, you know, we talk about the long game and, you know, with with, with Vitaly, you know, you can see that talent and there's an excitement about, you, you know, that potential. But his developmental path obviously has become a little bit longer than maybe people thought. And, and that's not, I don't think that's any fault of the player. And now we saw what happened last year. He leaves, he comes back, but I still think he's a really good player. Now, Valery Bragan, the longtime uh, junior coach of Russia, you know, he, he was the first one that suggested that maybe we should try him in the middle. He didn't feel that their talent pool in the middle of the ice for that World Junior Tournament in Vancouver uh, was that strong. So, you know, we started playing him at center ice uh, in the under 20 competitions. And then he, he played a little bit in the KHL at center ice. And, and you know, I always thought about Vitaly as that, winger get the puck on the move he was powerful he had a quick shot a good release took the puck to the net and you know i'm thinking geez putting him in the middle you know i wasn't i wasn't sold on it but then when i watched him in the middle of the ice i saw a player that could make plays and could distribute the puck on the wing and you know and still be a a a good offensive uh shooter because you know that's really where his game was at but but i Obviously, Valeri Bragan saw something in, in Krasov that, you know, maybe because you're around him so much and you try him in different things, whether it be in practice, you go, hey, let's try him in a game. Let's keep trying him here. And so, you know, I, it, it would be an experiment. And, you know, it might become one of those uh, experiments that you that you want to try just because you might not, you, you might want to try to fill that center hole and you might want to feel that he, okay, let's give this a shot and see where it goes. And you, you, it may not work, but it may work. So if I'm, if I'm asking myself and I'm the Rangers, I like him as a winger and I think he can be an effective winger, both as a shooter and as a playmaker, which he showed in the middle of the ice. And, and that's where I would like him to, to, to be. But I'm not averse to trying him in the middle of the ice. I think one of the benefits for Vitaly Krasov now is that he's around some really mature Russian players on the team. Panarin's mature, Shesterkin's mature. Busnevich has had, you know, some kind of ups and downs in his career with the New York Rangers, but he keeps forging forward. And I think having, you know, the first two and certainly Busnevich to kind of talk about his own trials and tribulations, I think can benefit Vitaly Krasov. I would be very careful if I was the New York Rangers about being too rash about him because I think he's a really good talent. And when I think about a, a, a player that it's skilled and has size and can play the game with 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 that type of scoring panache playmaking or shooting and also you know can play at that pace and speed uh, like i'm not giving up on Vitaly Krasov. i'm just not Oh, no, absolutely not. And I'm, I'm really glad that you identified that too. His ability to create off the rush was something that I ended up doing the write-up for the New York Rangers system when we did our, our team-by-team breakdowns last year. And one of the things that really jumped out 
was his ability to create off the rush, his ability to make really smart decisions with the puck when he was pressured and 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 right as he crossed the blue line, attacking in an arc, uh, making sure that he always was available as an outlet, attacking pockets of space, timing his rushes into those areas well. Uh, really good one-timer too, got a big wheelhouse. Um, you know, I, I'm with you on this one where it's like, I, I, I like the idea of giving him a shot down the middle of the ice. And, and I think that that was a really interesting decision on Valeri Bragan's part, particularly because, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this front, but I believe the first line of that group was Clem Costin, who I've got a ton of time for. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if he's a, an A-grade prospect, but I love the way he plays the game. Uh, but he also had some experience down the middle. But instead, they put Kravtsov at center on that first line with with Kostin and, and Grigorenko, uh, or sorry, Denisenko. Yes, where are my manners? Denisenko, Grigori Denisenko, and and that group was just electric all tournament long. And, you know, it was a really nice little bit of, of proof of concept. And uh, I'm with you. If he's at, if he's down the middle of the lineup, if he's on the wing, I mean, either way, you've got a pretty electric prospect and somebody that I would covet as a piece moving forward in this rebuild. And, and that's a really good point, too, about Pavel Buchnevich. I mean, we, we talk a lot about... And I mean we in the greater sense, uh, the the hockey commentariat. We talk about Russian players, and there there are still these really bad lingering stereotypes about uh, commitment to the game and do they play it the right way and and their attitude and all this. And I, I think that you had the perfect take on Pavel Buchnevich is well, he's just persevered through it all. He's been benched, he's been marginalized, he's played on the fourth line. Uh, you name it, and he just keeps on trucking. And and what a great example that would set for Vitaly Kravtsov. Um, is there anybody else in this Rangers pool? I know we talked a little bit about, you know, the Austin Ruishoffs and, and the Justin Richards and the Kodorenkos, but those are, I mean, uh, that's the thing with college free agents, right? Brian Burke said it best. They're like a found wallet. Sometimes there's money in there, but if there isn't, you haven't lost anything. Uh, is there anybody else in that system that you think could maybe challenge for that role down the middle of their lineup could maybe be an impact player at the NHL level? Because I mean, that's, that really is for me, the argument for trading down is, I mean, how else are you going to find these players? And, and you know what, they are going to be picking 13th overall. They've got the Carolina hurricanes pick and that is right in Seth Jarvis territory. But if not there, I mean, where are they going to find this player? Well, and that's 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 always the quest. Now, I really like Carl Hendrickson. Carl Hendrickson's two years away from being able to, I think, contribute in the National Hockey League. Uh, but I really like Carl Hendrickson. And if you go back and you look at uh, Carl Hendricks, Hendrickson's record, specifically internationally, I mean, he played in between Lucas Raymond and Alexander Holtz. And that type of centerman that can play two ways and understand what he has to do in his game to affect the, the, the greatest impact on his wingers, I, I think Carl has that. I think Carl needs some physical maturity and, and just the time. He needs time. Now, when I say two years away from being able to contribute, that's another year in junior, another year playing pro somewhere, and, and then going from there. But I really like Carl Hendrickson, and I think he's a really, really good player. And so that would be the guy. Obviously, they had real high hopes for Leah Sanderson, and that that has that has come off the rails uh, for for Leas and the way he felt he's being treated, and he, he doesn't he doesn't like it. And you know whether I agree with it or not, uh, the bottom line is is that there's a, there's friction there. 
And, you know, they, they, they traded Derek Stepan to get the seventh overall pick. They took Leah Sanderson. Whether we can debate whether it was the right pick or the wrong pick, but that, they were counting on him to be a player to, to fill that center ice role. And, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe the, uh, maybe the feature can be, uh, can be, you know, healed and, 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 taken to another level i i can't answer to that but you know outside of those two players and and really henriksen is the guy i know they have high hopes for morgan Barron, who they just signed uh out of uh, cornell but he, he's going to need some time too he's a he's a big centerman he's a different type of centerman i think he's a third line center type but he, he brings that size and that and that length and that intelligence uh to your center ice position but he's a different type of center and you know when you got Sabanajad I mean Ryan Strom had a had a terrific year and when we talk about salary cap implications going forward and I'm going to go back to something you said earlier when I finished with this is that you know you're going to have to make decisions uh based on your salary cap to say you know what that's a luxury we can't afford right now. And Ryan Stroll might find himself in that. And it's this, I, I come from the Bill Belichick school of what I call dispassionate assessment. And it's not that you don't like the player, but you've got to be dispassionate in your assessment. And the reason I bring that up now to go back earlier, it goes back to your comment about Tim Stutzla. Listen, I haven't met, in fact, in, in all my years, rarely have I met a player that wasn't a really good young man and I didn't like. So when you're evaluating Tim Stutzel, as much as you like the interview with him, as much as you like him, dispassionate assessment, J.D. Don't ever change that. Oh, I know. I Believe me, I, I resisted the temptation <laughs> to move him down. It was it was strong. I'd be lying if that yeah. wasn't the case. And, and you know, it's just like more Sider last year with the Detroit Red Wings. I, I remember seeing when they took him at, at sixth overall, and I hope Rob doesn't take this too personally. Uh, shout out to our producer there. But I was like, oh, that's a bit rich for my taste. And then leaving the, the interview from the podium being like, actually, it's good. Uh, <laughs> but you're being honest yeah. with yourself, J.D. Yeah. And that's, that, you know... I, I, I'm pretty sure you and I have had this conversation previously, but you know, we all have biases and we all, in, 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 in everything we do in terms of scouting and evaluation, right? But you have to be aware of those biases and recognize where those biases are so that they don't overwhelm your evaluations that you can say, yeah, I really like this kid or geez, I really like him. He's really a hardworking player, but I'm not so sure about a skill. Right. And, or geez, I like him, but he's five foot nine. Like, you know, and, and those biases come across. You, you talked about Russian players, you know, the biases run in so many different areas and, and you got to be aware of them. And you not only, have to be aware of your own biases you have to be aware of how to take advantage of other teams and their individual biases as well <laughs> no that's that's a really good point and that's one of the reasons too like when when i you know to to give people a peek behind the curtains here a bit when i talked to to peter um my boss at elite prospects i was like we we got to build out a team because uh you know what there's so much i still have to learn and there's so many different unique perspectives that i want brought to the table and and i think that that nobody's going to master their own biases and player evaluation. I mean, we're, we're only human and our, our brains find funny, unique ways to work against us all the time. And I think that's why there's value in having all these different voices brought to the table and, and certainly on the player evaluation side as well. I mean, just to, to kind of 
give people an insight to our, our last meeting and, and how it went when we were talking about how we're going to do our final board for the draft guide. You know, there's a player who it just he's he's built the way. And I'm sure you you have this conversation with yourself sometimes, Craig. Like there are players you come across in the draft where you're like, this player was built in a lab specifically to to annoy me. Do you know what I mean? The, their flaws, their flaws are just—they are so well tuned to upset your proprieties. And and we had one such player in in our meetings, and I'm like, ah, oh, he does the fake tough guy stuff. He doesn't support off the puck. He doesn't move his feet. Uh, and and of course, I had to to acquiesce to David Saint Louis and Mitch Brown because they went. I mean, you're you're right on those fronts, JD. But perhaps you're overthinking that relative to his 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 ability as a shooter, his ability as a handler of the puck. And you know, of course, I had to uh, you know really kind of hold up my end as a benevolent dictator and let them win that argument. So uh, that's absolutely a part of the process. And you know, I, I think that's going to be an interesting conversation in this this ten to twenty spot in the draft. Uh, just segueing to the, the the subject of our next interview. Uh, where some of these players, I mean, I, I really think that this draft gets interesting at about 10th overall, right? And and that's where I look across all these different rankings. I look across all these different outlets and I go, the variance here is huge. And it even was huge within our group during our last meeting. And I think about one of the players that the Rangers are going to have potentially available to them when they're up for the second time in this draft. That's Seth Jarvis. And, and what a story he's been. I mean, you look at his first half versus his second half of this year, completely different players statistically. Did you sort of see that coming from him, that, that second half explosion? And where do you think he settles in in this draft? Well, I mean, he, 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 in my last mock draft I did after the, uh, after the uh, Rangers won the uh, lottery, we got the first overall pick, I had the Winnipeg Jets taking Seth Jarvis at 10. Because the local kid, yeah, the local yeah, kid, I like but, but, it. But, but I mean, it was a nice little story, and you know, I always try to when I do the mock draft, I I try to have fun with it, and I, but but I also want to make it plausible. I don't want to make it something that's not plausible, and there can be disagreement, but that's all that, that's really what I'm trying to do. And you know, when I think about Seth, and you know, I've said this, you know, I'm going to do another list before the draft because I've had the opportunity to watch more, and I've had an opportunity to consider many things, and Seth is going to be higher on my list but you know i've had the, i've had the real good opportunity to watch seth for a lot of years now and you know you watch him you watch somebody that's confident with the puck you watch somebody that's a thinker he, he's able to understand okay this is what i can do here this is what i can't do and then he, he's just expanded that but i go back last summer to the halinka gretzky tournament and you know seth jarvis played in different roles on the team but yeah, and it wasn't a, a big offensive role, but he he created offense from his position in the lineup, and he killed penalties, and he did things playing right wing, and him and Maverick Bork both, you know, did so, so some really really positive things for Team Canada that to me really opened up my eyes to oh boy, this player is is a good solid player. Now I, I had this. Uh, discussion uh, with a number of people in Portland about him uh, being uh, a player that if I like Braden Point, how can you not like Seth Jarvis? And so that was one of the areas that I had to really go back and evaluate because I love Braden Point, always love Braden Point. And I said, you know, that's a, that's a legitimate challenge for, for people that know me that said, you know, one, 
isn't different than the other. And as I've watched and considered and looked at where, you know, Seth has, has a mind like Braden. He, he's got that, that, that op- he makes you think he's going to shoot and he's going to set up the pass. He makes you think he's going to pass and he shoots. He, he, he maneuvers. He's elusive. He doesn't get tied up in unnecessary areas on the ice. And that's what you have to be when you're the stature of, of Seth Jarvis. You're not going to go take on the big players physically. You've got to take them on with the skills that allow you to, to gain an advantage. So that's what I've seen with Seth. And, I mean, and, and I, I think he's like Brayden. You're not going to push him out of a game. He's a, he's, a, he's a competitor. And one of the lines that I use all the time, still waters run deep. Just watch the game. See who's in the middle of things. Seth's in the middle of things. Oh, that's that's an absolutely great point. I was actually just going to say, like, one of the things that I really came to appreciate about Seth Jarvis was, I mean, he's only five foot ten. We've got him at one hundred and seventy two pounds on elite prospects. But this is somebody who's not only willing to play in traffic. This is somebody who excels playing in traffic and and the way that he he consistently moves off the half wall sometimes with one or two defenders draped on him and 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 you talk about that decept uh deception that elusiveness right he just attracts defenders and then consistently puts the puck on his teammates' sticks in position to score. And and I think about a player like that who makes everyone around him better. That's that's Seth Jarvis. And and what a timely comparison too for Braden Point, who just put the dagger in the uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets season there with that overtime winner. I mean, I think if he's half the player that Braden Point is, whoever drafts him is going to be really happy. Um, you know what's really interesting for me though, Craig, and and perhaps you've had a different experience talking to people on the team side. But I found that that the variance of opinions on Seth Jarvis, and this is often the case uh, with NHL teams relative to the public, but the variance of opinions on Seth Jarvis is so fascinating to me because you'll talk to one person from one team and that scout will just sing his praises for 10 minutes, top 10 pick. That's how they rate him. Then you'll talk to somebody else and they'll tell you, I wouldn't even use a first rounder on this kid. And I think that's relatively commonplace once you get past about 10 to 15 in the first round. But uh, it, it was really a, a really interesting kind of insight into the way that NHL teams work. What have you kind of encountered in, in some of your conversations? Have you kind of had that same variance when you talk to people on the team side? Well, absolutely. And as you and, and, and as you get past, you know, five players or seven players or whatever the number of players is, I mean, I I, I think that I'm, I'm never surprised, uh, JD, to hear uh, the variance of opinions. I mean, I mean, I've talked to people that think that uh, NHL personnel that think Jake Sanderson's a better defense prospect than. Uh, Jamie Drysdale. And yep, same here. Yeah, so so we're talking about two players that could go on the top seven, six, five picks, even right, and and yet there's there, there's variance of opinion on those. And you know, like, do you like Alexander Holtz more? Do you like Lucas Raymond? Do you like Alexander Holtz? Do you like Jack Quinn? Do you like Marco Rossi? Do you like Cole Perfetti? So as you get as you get further down the list, and not that much further down the list, you can get a lot of different and and and. I think the variance has become wider, you know, with respect to, you know, how, how, how teams and how individuals uh, look at the players. And you talk about building out a team and elite prospects. You know, one of the important things is having that team aspect where, you know, where people and, and, and the individuals can express their viewpoint and really good scouting staffs, really good management staffs listen. And it's not just about 
uh, listen to what they said. Can you believe that, that 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 person doesn't like that player or whatever? You listen, and 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 you always need to listen and hear and go. Geez, that's an interesting point. And and the reason you have to do that because if you have the right members on your team, then you have to value their opinions and you have to value their insight. And that's how you you know you become exponentially better as a group. It's not about one versus this one and I'm going to fight for my player and I'm going to show you and I'm going to fight for my player and I'm going to show you. It's not about that. It's not about fighting for a player or not. It's about trying to come to what I call as complete a picture of that player at that particular point in time with the requisite projections and the requisite understanding of what developmental timelines are to come and understand this is the player we want. And, you know, it's not just about who you want. It's also about having the confidence that that's the guy you want. And I, I, I think that that becomes incredibly important in the whole process. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And, and like you said, I, I just don't get surprised anymore. The, the example that I love to lean on is, I spoke with one team executive last year who told me that they just didn't have Dylan Cousins on their board. And I looked at the at where they were picking and I went, seriously? And then he went, yeah, we just, there are parts of his game we don't like. And now you look a year later and he might be one of the top five affiliated prospects uh, outside of the NHL. And, and then you just go, go figure. And that doesn't mean that they're wrong. There's still a lot of runway. A lot of things can go right or wrong for Dylan Cousins on his pathway to the NHL, but certainly a very interesting uh, contextual nugget. Now we got to, we got to get going here. We got to get to Seth Jarvis. And, and of course, we're going to have a great chat with him. Uh, Craig, I know you're super busy. I assume that when I'm talking, you've actually got a, a camera recording you uh, for PSN whenever I'm going on and rambling, right? Wow. Just double dipping at the same time because it, it just seems like you might be the hardest working man in the industry. So I really appreciate your time. And uh, I hope that everyone enjoys our conversation with Seth. He's, a, he's an awesome kid. Uh, works his tail off. He's he's going to go in the top half of this draft, I think, and whichever team takes him is going to be so much better for it. Well, thank you. And I, uh, you know what? I got to I got to tell you a Braden Point story. Yeah, before we get Bring to it. Seth Jarvis. Bring it. Okay, and I will. But and let me tell you that, you know what? There's there's not one most hardest working person. Everybody's working hard. Everybody is passionate about what they do. So I, you know, when when I look around and I see how hard people work and how passionate they are, that runs across so many different areas. And so, you know what? Uh, I'm happy to be considered hardworking amongst a, a great group of hardworking people. Now, Braden Point. First round pick to the Moose Jaw Warriors. Uh, and now after his midget season completed in Calgary, he went to play for the uh, Moose Jaw Warriors. Al Murray, assistant general manager now with the Tampa Bay Lightning, uh, they had gone in because Morgan Riley had uh, injured his knee earlier in that year and he was coming back to play. So Steve Eiserman, the general manager, went with him. So the game starts and Steve is watching intently and he's asking about this kid well, he goes, what about this kid? And Al keeps reminding him, he goes, ah, he's a midget player. He's not eligible for the draft for a couple more seasons. And Al says, next period, he goes, what about this kid? <laughs> what about this kid? And it goes on, right? So obviously they're there to watch Morgan Riley, but there's Steve Eisenman watching the game. And, and Braden at that point in time might have been 5'8", 145 pounds coming out of midget hockey. And, you know, 
Al, I mean, they drafted Braden in the third round, and Al said, I knew that if we didn't get Braden Point in the draft a few years later, that Steve Eisenman was not going to be happy. <laughs> so he said, we're very pleased that we got him in the third round. I'm very pleased. He goes, but Steve really recognized what a hell of a player he was coming right out of midget into the Western Hockey League playoffs. So, again, you know, you don't have to be big. You don't have to be physically mature at that age. But the qualities that you can demonstrate are really significant for uh, understanding, uh, for, for evaluators to understand what, what the essence of your game is. And that's where Seth Jarvis, I think, clearly has demonstrated what he's capable of. If you're listening to the Elite Prospects podcast with J.D. Burke and Craig Button, there's a good chance you're a fan of the NHL draft. And if you're a fan of the NHL draft, you're going to want to get the Elite Prospects draft guide. We've got reports on over 470 players, write-ups on at least 200 of them, and we're going to include game reports, player reports, tools, grades, and analytics that you won't be able to find anywhere else. We've got Jeremy Davis of Next Generation Hockey. He's going to be providing us with the PGPS metric, which determines a player's percentage likelihood of going on to the NHL, and the SEAL-adjusted scoring metric. And that's going to give you some insight into how to level the playing field across leagues in terms of players' production. We're also going to be partnering up with Instat Hockey to provide you with some proprietary analytics that they have tracked. This is going to be the most comprehensive draft guide on the market and you're going to want to have this when that october day comes and your team alters the complexion of their franchise for the next 5 10 maybe even 15 years the elite prospects draft guide is complete with an elite prospects premium membership and you can find it at elite prospects rinkside on eprinkside.com thanks so much for your time Joining the program, he is the 13th ranked prospect on EliteProspects.com. He played for Team Canada at the Holinka Gretzky and Breslab in the Czech Republic. But most prominently, he is known for his contributions to the Portland Winterhawks playing on their right wing, where he produced 98 points in 58 games. That's right. It is none other than Seth Jarvis. Seth, how are you doing? Welcome to the program. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you guys for having me. Um, yeah, it's been fun. It's definitely... Uh, new experience. I think you can't really ask uh, ask many people for advice just because no one's gone through it. But I think for the people I've reached out to in terms of interviews and stuff, they've given me a lot of a lot of good pieces of advice to carry through uh, when meeting with each team. Well, you know, Seth, I've had the luxury of watching you for a number of years now, and, you know, you just continue to shine. So I'm not so surprised about what you've been able to do in a very competitive league. And let me ask you this, you know, watching you last year at the Holinka Gretzky, you know, you were asked to do some different things in the game, but, but it didn't take away anything from your offensive game. You created a lot of offensive chances, you know, and I think we look at the points and we look at how gifted you are offensively, but are people giving you enough credit for being a really well-rounded player and very adaptable? Yeah. Sometimes I, I think my defensive game goes a little bit unnoticed. I think uh, I don't play a, <clears throat> a very heavy defensive game. I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw my, throw a lot of my body around, but I think I play a more strategic and uh, thinking style where I can kind of read plays and try to just kind of strip pucks uh, similar to what Pavel Datsuk used to do people just with stick lifts and uh, turn the puck over that way. Well, you know what I call that, Seth? I call that beating up your opponents with your mind. (laughs) Yeah. What uh, what did that tournament kind of do for you this year? Because as, as I was saying in the kind of lead up here, a lot of teams, a lot of the people I spoke to in the public sphere, they had Seth Jarvis 
They had you right around, I think, the beginning of the second round, maybe the middle of the second round. And then you have that tournament where you're what happens a lot of the times with the with younger players when they get to Team Canada, whether it's the Holinka, whether it's the World Junior A Challenge, whether it's the World Juniors, you get this collection of talent and they're asked to play a different role. They can't be the star player because there's only room for so many on every team. What did that tournament kind of do for you as in terms of your development? Was it kind of a learning experience for you or was it kind of a, it brought out something that was already there in terms of your adaptability and your, your willingness to change depending on the scenario you're playing? in? Yeah, I think it was a little bit of both. I think, um, I think a lot of it was just learning that obviously you, you hear about guys and uh, you see guys through, through uh, the internet, but you don't get to play with quite like the Quinton Byfields and guys like that. But I think when you get to be on a team with them and be with guys that you don't, don't normally play with, I think it, uh, it forces everyone to adapt and forces everyone to uh, kind of take on a little bit of a different role. And I think that's something I've always, always been able to do and always had inside me. And I think that was just uh, a time on a, on a big stage where I could really, really showcase that. So, Seth, you, I mean, obviously you have supporters in Portland. I mean, Mike Johnston is such a, such a good supporter, but he's not the only one. And over the course of this year, I got challenged by a couple of people in Portland. They said, you've always loved Braden Point. And he said, how can you not love Seth Jarvis the same way? And so, you know, it's great. It's great to be challenged. And I, I, I say this all the time. You got to learn. You got to watch. You got to listen to other people. And I think it's an absolutely fair question when people ask me. So, you know, I've come around to that and I say, hey, listen, I think at the same age, you're, 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 you are as good as, as Braden Point. And I think you have the same type of promise. Now, do you watch Braden Point? Do you see any similarities in your game and Braden Point's game? Yeah, I, I've been watching him like a hawk this whole playoffs. I think he's been he's been incredible this whole this whole uh, this whole time. So yeah, I see a few similarities. I think we definitely. I think a big big one that people make is the size. I think we're around the same size, the same height and weight. So that's a pretty easy one to make. But I think there's uh, there's a lot of pieces of his game that I definitely implement into mine. Whether it's being a smaller guy that finds himself in the front of the net and those kind of dirty areas, getting getting those goals in tight, and then having uh, having that kind of skill and uh, the poise to make those plays, especially in tight in front of the net, uh, like you saw as overtime winner the other night, uh, plays like that that just seem to come uh, seem to come naturally to him. We're all kind of, I mean, it's it's just great right now. The NHL playoffs, you've got hockey seemingly every day from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. It seems like you've been watching a lot of this playoff hockey. Have you kind of taken away anything from this experience? I mean, you don't usually get hockey in a, a concentrated dose like this unless you're going to some of those junior tournaments, like the ones that I just talked about. Is there anything you've kind of taken away from that? Like something that you, you watched a player, whether it was a Braden Point or someone else, and you said, that's something that I hadn't seen before. That's a component to his game that I need to add to mine or, or, you know, anything to that effect. Have you had that kind of moment with the playoffs? Yeah. I think there's been a few moments where not only with a guy like Braden point who I'm watching, watching a lot of, but even other guys that you don't notice or you don't know as much, maybe because they're on a, they're on a team with a bunch of star players or, or guys that are just playing really well in playoffs. I think there's a bunch of people on a lot of different teams that you can really take stuff away from. I think every time you watch, whether it be uh, like Columbus, I loved, uh, I love Foodie on that, on that team. I think the way he played, 
he was incredible the whole playoffs, especially coming in at, I think, 19, 20 years old. That's something not a lot of people can do. So I think watching him, he was another player I really focused on. Well, you, you, you talked earlier, Seth, about, you know, making plays in tight and in and around the net. Now, I don't know if you happened to see the, uh, the little piece uh, during the broadcast the other night on Elias Pettersson, that he could ride a unicycle and juggle at the same yeah. time. Can, can you do that? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and what do you do to work on your hands in those tight spaces? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's a little bit of my comfort zone. I don't think uh, I'll be on a unicycle anytime soon. But yeah, a lot of it just has to come with repetition. I think I try to break it down as simply as possible, whether it just be working on pucks or working at uh, elevating the puck really close to the net. And I think once you kind of really get those uh, those simple reps down and really practice the the basics of it, I think you can really expand your game and really try try those things that you see like Ryan O'Reilly doing his drills in front of the net and people like that, where you really push yourself, really challenge yourself. One of the and, things that's really uh, impressed me, Seth, is you know your awareness, your your ability to see the play. I call it three hundred sixty degree awareness. And you know, there's so many times I've watched you play where it, you make it look like you're going to pass it, and you're you're in position to shoot it, and and vice versa, where you make it look like you're going to shoot it, and then you got the guy wide open. So as you develop those things, and I call it deception, and using those types of elements, you know, how have those things you know developed over the course of your career coming coming through minor hockey and into uh the western hockey league. yeah a lot of minor hockey i uh i was i was a shooter i didn't uh i didn't look to to pass them pass the buck as much and i think when i got to portland i really took my game another level uh implementing that passing element and i was behind cody glass and i watched him like a hawk and he's probably the best i've seen especially in person at those deceptive no look passes and no look shots. So he was someone that I took a lot of that deception from and a lot of that looking one way past the other, shooting the other. And I think he's, uh, he's been a big piece for that, to that whole deceptive part of my game. And, and I wanted to ask you about the, the first half and second half of the season splits, because I mean, 37 points through the first half of the season is, is nothing to scoff at. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that's putting you in first round territory right there. But then you go ahead and put up 61 points in the second half of the season. Was there a moment where everything just sort of clicked? Was it a, a, a kind of combination of opportunity, finding chemistry with new line mates? Like what was the, the key to unlocking that scoring potential that seemingly just the snap of your fingers, you went from somebody producing at nearly two points on a per game basis? Yeah, I think for me, a lot of it had to do with confidence. I think I was playing the first half a little bit scared. I think everyone, when you come to your draft, you don't want to make a mistake and, uh, and really, really mess it up that way. But I think when I came back after Christmas, when it kind of took off, I came back and just kind of, I knew I wanted to really make a push and I really wanted to help my team out more than I was. And so my coaches knew I had more in me and they gave me the opportunity to, to play and play freely. And when I started playing more freely and really just started uh, going back to playing like I was playing on a pond hockey game and just making making plays and just playing fast, I think that's when my game really took off. You know, Seth, uh, like, I mean, I'm going to take that clip and I'm going to send it to every minor hockey coach on the planet because just how you talked about playing freely and playing to your strengths, you know, I think that's so important for players to be comfortable doing what they are instead of not, instead of trying to do things that you may be not so comfortable with. Now, that leads me in to 
my next question. I mean, to me, there's no question whether you had two points a game in the second half or whatnot, you're a first round pick. Now, we did a little mock draft the other day on TSN and I had you go into the Winnipeg Jets at 10. Now, a local kid, you know, and from Winnipeg, like going to the, what would it, I mean, I, I know it's, you're, you'd be happy to go to any other team, but Growing up in that area, watching the Winnipeg Jets, you know, what's impressed you? You talk about Cody Glass, another Manitoba kid. Mark Scheifele, who, who, who's a superstar in the league. You know, two, two excellent centers, and you, you fall right in line, you know, with, with them. You know, how do you feel, I mean, Winnipeg aside, but just those guys in Winnipeg and the NHL all in all with your game and those types of players? Yeah, I mean, coming home would be – would be something that I don't know if I could describe because a lot of guys don't get to experience that. And I think just to be one of them would be a huge honor for me. And I think, uh, as you mentioned, I know, I know Cody modeled his game after Mark Shifley a lot. I think you see a few similarities there. And I think Mark Shifley is definitely a guy I watch when I watch the jets and, uh, he's someone that you can always learn stuff from. I think he, you've seen in whether it be documentaries or short clips of him, he's an absolute gamer. He knows, he knows every guy, every hand each guy shoots in the NHL. So it's, there's a bunch of stuff you can really take away from that. And I think if I were to be around him, I think it'd be, it'd be a whole new, whole new world of soaking information in and just uh, showing, teaching me how to be a pro. And, and who has kind of taken that role on the junior side? I know you mentioned Cody Glass, for example, and getting to learn from him in the way that he layers deception and manipulation to be a creative playmaker. But, I mean, you also, to, to kind of circle things back, you also got to play with Quinton Byfield. You got to play with some of the best Canadian junior players in the world when you played at the, the Holinka Gretzky. I mean, have, has anybody else taken on that role for you? Somebody who has kind of taken you under their wing and shown you, hey, here's what you do well and here's how we can take it to another level even an answer as simple as the coach i mean who has been that player for you yeah like you said i think the coaches are always the biggest ones for me i think uh in terms of players one guy I looked uh looked to especially especially during the helenko was uh cole perfetti i think everyone saw his his sweden his sweden i don't know even what to call it but shoot, that <laughs> yeah was, whatever, that makes he, two of us whatever he put on there, <laughs> that was that was something i don't know if I, I've never seen anything like that other than maybe in a practice, but I just, I had to ask him questions about whether, whether what he looks for, what he, what he kind of looks at coming down in a breakaway or coming down in a shootout. So he was someone that could, that gave tips and obviously his tips work cause he's, he's incredible at it. But I think uh, coaches are big for me. I had Don Hay who I was lucky enough to have this year for a forward coach. And that guy has more experience than I think all my coaches have had in the past combined. So He's someone that he'll teach. He'll teach anyone who's willing to learn, and he'll talk to anyone who's willing to listen. So I think when I was able to really connect with him this year and really, really just take in everything he had to offer and just look at look at things in his perspective, that really, really helped my game. Well, uh, so now you know at this point in time, in a in a normal year, you would be getting prepared for Western Hockey League camp and going to an NHL camp. You know, obviously there's uncertainty, and that weighs on you. What have you been doing? What have you been able to do? I know you just came off of the Hockey Canada Virtual Junior Camp, but what else have you been able to do to to really keep your game, you know, honed and and continue to progress and develop? Yeah, honestly, training. That's what's keeping me sane right now. It's what's keeping <laughs> pushing me through everything. So, whenever I can get out to the rink and get into the gym, that's what kind of just keeps me going. I think it's just always wanting to get better and always wanting to progress. I think. Obviously, everyone's goal is to make the NHL, and that's 
very hard thing to do, especially as a young guy. So I think whenever I either have the chance to skate with pro players or skate with guys at that level, I think when I, when I try to match myself up with them, I understand that I still have a lot of work to do and still have stuff I need to work on. So that's what really, really motivates me and is really getting me through these times. And, well, and what's, sorry, Craig, you no, can go, go ahead, JD. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll ask you this one then. Uh, what's something that you think you need to work on uh, as you transition from being a dominant WHL player to somebody who can challenge for an NHL roster spot, somebody who can challenge to be an impact player at the NHL level. What have you identified as an area, perhaps not of weakness, but one where you have room for, for perhaps even significant growth? Yeah. A lot of it has to do with being able to use my body more. I think uh, the NHL is a fast physical game. So I want to be able to develop my body. And so a lot of that has to come within the gym and being able to put time in the weight room. So I think a lot of that just is maturing as a person, as a, as a, just a, with my body. So a lot of it's been in the gym, just getting bigger and stronger and improving on my speed. And then on the ice, it's a lot of puck protection and a lot of, a lot of quick plays that can, because obviously the time and space gets a lot, a lot shorter and a lot, you have a lot less time to make plays. So I just need to work on uh, just being able to spin off checks and be able to make quick plays either to the front of the net or, or out of my zone whether I'm playing center or winger. Well, I will say this, Seth. I mean, you're, you're, you're a very promising young player. And, you know, your play on the ice is really impressive. But uh, listen to you talk. And when you mention Datsuk, Point, Shifley, Cody Glass, I would suggest that you got some really strong people you're following uh, with respect to wh what they do well and what you're trying to apply. And it's uh, obviously the work you put in on the ice, but your attentiveness to detail and your desire to be such a top end player speaks volumes. And I'm sure it's impressed all the NHL teams you've talked to. Thank you. Speaking of one last question here and we'll let you go. So we were talking a little bit about the variance in rankings and, and that happens in the public sphere, but even more so with teams. And, and if you look in the public, I think a lot of scouting outlets have you in the top 10. Some others have you closer to 20. Do you have a rough idea of where you expect to go in the draft? I mean, some people will tell you just flat out, Hey, I, I'm going to go between 15 and 20. Others don't have a clue. Where are you at with this process? Yeah, honestly, it's uh I don't really have much of a clue. I think uh, a lot of it has to do with team needs. So whatever, whatever a team's kind of picking, I think uh, they're going to lean more towards what they, well, obviously what they want and maybe not uh, whether it'd be the best overall, best uh, player available. And maybe if they need a defenseman, they'll, they'll pick a defenseman or, uh, or a wing or a center. So I think uh, a lot of that has to do with the team. So it's hard, it's hard to judge, but I, I would hope anywhere uh, top 10, top 15, anything, Really, anything to get drafted would be a huge honor. So I'm just hoping to hear my name and hear my name called early. You're going to hear your name called. And oh, you know yeah. what? The, 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 uh, the, the, the anxiousness leading up to it, I mean, that's there. But once, that, once you hear your name called, you are going to be thrilled. And, you know, we can't wait for the draft uh, in October. I, it's long overdue. It's long overdue for you. It's long overdue for fans. And, you know, continue to put in the work. And I know you do. And, you know, it, it, we're, in, we're, we're in unprecedented times. And you know what? We all have to understand that and be patient with it. But... Your future is bright, Seth. I'm certain of that. Thank you. Hey, this is Rob from the Elite Prospects Podcast. I'm the producer. Uh, if you guys are a product or brand or a company that would like to sponsor the Elite Prospects Podcast, let me know uh, via email at robert.love at eliteprospects.com or just message us on any of our social media platforms. We'll get back to you and we can talk about uh, the next steps. Thanks.